We can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 as we continue our studies in this encouraging book. We're going to look at verses 23 through 29 this evening. The bitterness of women. Women, please still pay attention to what I have to say tonight, but uh, it's not just talking about women, by the way, but certainly women are involved here. The bitterness of women. Verses 23 through 29. I'll begin reading it, verse 23. All this I have proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death. The man whose heart is a woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Here's what I have found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Truly, this only I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many devices. Amen. Let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, we are so uh, quick to be foolish in this world. So often, oh God, we make poor and wrong decisions, especially when it comes to our sins and temptations. So often we give into them, oh God. And that's why we are thankful for the finished work of Christ, that we are covered in his blood. And so we ask, oh God, as we walk this world, that we would be a wise people, that we would have discernment, that we would be able to make right decisions, certainly in our life, but also in the temptations that we endure. May we make sure that we do what is right. May we flee and run from sin. May we kill sin before it kills us. And, oh God, we know that we cannot do it without you. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We know that wisdom is fearing you and shunning evil is understanding. So we pray, oh God, that we would do so. And we know, oh God, that you are wisdom itself. And we ask that you'd bestow wisdom upon us even now as we come to your word. We need illumination from on high. We need your spirit to help us understand what is going on in this difficult book. We're thankful, oh God, for the encouragement you give to us as we come to your word. So be with us now by your spirit. Give us comfort and strength, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, when I was a teenager, no surprise, I liked ladies and I liked to, you know, pursue ladies to have perhaps a girlfriend. And even I had a lot of girls who were not necessarily girlfriends, but they were my friends. But one thing I noticed in this endeavor, whether it was friends or girlfriends, was the fact that in any relationship, it was always my fault. It was always my problem. It was always my issue. I was always the one at fault. Even when we were just hanging out as friends, we always did what the ladies wanted. The men never had a say. The men never could do anything. It was always what the women wanted to do. And unfortunately, sometimes Christians have adopted this sort of mentality. The woman, the woman is always right in the language of happy life or happy wife, happy life, right? Unfortunately, that is not always true, is it? Women can sin just as much as men. And certainly we see that here in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is what the preacher wants us to see here as he sees that women can be a snare to men and men can fall into said snare. And even sometimes, as Solomon will say, a godly woman who can find. This is what he's observed as he reflects on his vain life. A woman can lead a man down a foolish path. And certainly this book is all about enigmas, all about mysteries, all about 
conundrums that come upon the people of God, that come upon all people in this world, the inconsistencies that one wrestles with because of the problem of sin, because of the fallenness of the world in which we live. And he comes then to deal, as he talks about women, the enigma of wisdom. He has sought it, he has pursued it, but he has not found it. And one manifestation of his not being able to find it is him being ensnared by many different ladies, him being ensnared by the women that he sought to pursue, but it only led to vanity, only led to enigma, only led to foolishness. So the problem, I think, is clear how problematic women can be. And again, caveat, it's not a sweeping dismissal of ladies. I will unpack what he means here as we go through. There perhaps is some metaphor going on here talking about lady wisdom versus dame folly. However, perhaps there is some a literal aspect here. The manifestation of dame folly is Solomon pursuing 1,000 ladies. And those 1,000 ladies turned him away from God most high. He's really highlighting here how problematic sin is in our pursuit of what is right. How problematic the fall is in our pursuit of what, how men and women ought to live in this world. So Ecclesiastes 7 verses 23 through 29, the preacher has sought wisdom, but found himself ensnared by women. He sought wisdom, but it only led to grief as he was ensnared by women. And we'll look at this under two headings this evening. First of all, discovering how ensnaring women are, verses 23 through 26. And secondly, discovering how rare a godly woman is, verses 27 through 29. So discovering how ensnaring women are and discovering how rare a godly woman is. So let's first look at discovering how ensnaring women uh, women are in verses 23 through 26. Verses 23 and 24, he discusses his pursuit of wisdom to find what is wisdom in this world. What is the meaning of life? And remember, he's he's been doing this throughout the book. He is trying to determine what is right and what is wrong. And he says in verse 23, all this I have proven by wisdom. And all this probably refers to the immediate context, verses 1 through 22, how good sorrow is, how good the end is, how good God is, even though there's crookedness in this world. But also perhaps it's the entire book that he's uh, referring to as well. I've recognized, I have seen uh, in this world that there is sorrow, there's an end, there is sin, but there's moderation, there's fear, there's darkness, there's comfort, there's injustice, and the problem of time. This book gives us a proper perspective on the world that we endure. It's not always roses. It's not always fun. It's not always sunshine and rainbows and singing zippity doodah, but it really is a world that has fallen. Things are sometimes, and most of the time, things are not fair. There's things we don't understand. There's things we do not grasp. There are inconsistencies and enigmas in the present world that we face. It gives us a well-rounded perspective, especially for God's people, in a fallen world. So he sought wisdom, but also as he sought wisdom, he realized he did not find its fullness. And we see how unattainable wisdom truly is. Verses 23 and 24. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? This is encouraging for me. Hopefully this is encouraging for you. You want to know why? Solomon was the wisest person there was, right? 
Yet he says the same things. He has conundrums and perplexities that you and I probably have in this world. He says, I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is afar off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? The best of men are men at best. Even though Solomon was the wisest, he was not and is not wisdom itself. Only God Almighty is wisdom itself. Only God possesses that perfection of wisdom. Certainly, we see the uh, communicable attribute in this world. That is, we see wisdom, some, hopefully some wisdom found in men to some degree. There's wisdom in creation, but God is wisdom itself. And we cannot know wisdom the way God knows wisdom. Because God is infinite. God is immeasurable. And God's wisdom cannot be measured by our own. Yet we do possess a finite wisdom his is infinite. And so he says, I will be wise. It is far from me. Where can I find it? It is exceedingly deep. It's like a giant, uh, it's a giant crevice. It's like a giant uh, a cave that one uh, a ravine that one looks down and one cannot see the bottom of it. It is so difficult to find a wise person who can find a wise man who can find a wise woman who can find where in the world is wisdom and hopefully you know the answer to that question where wisdom is certainly throughout this book we've seen god come up often already he's going to drive to the end of the matter even though there are conundrums and inconsistencies still what's the end of the matter fear god and keep his commandments what's interesting is job has an interesting chapter on the pursuit of where a wisdom where can it be found I, probably, I think I have read this before in connection with Ecclesiastes, but Job 28, he gives a discourse on wisdom. And remember, wisdom is the right use of God's law and circumstances, doing what is right in circumstances. Foolishness is sin. Foolishness is doing the wrong thing in circumstances. Well, wisdom is doing what is right. And who can do what is right? Where is rightness? Where is wisdom? And so he kind of starts, surely there is a mine for silver in a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelt from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore and the darkness and the shadow of death. So man is seeking, man is pursuing, but he cannot find it in the recesses of the earth. Or he's talking, he's comparing you know, ore and silver and all these things. Then verse 12, but where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep say, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, so on and so forth. And verse 20, from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. He's going on a quest to find this wisdom. Destruction and death say, we have heard a report about it with our ears. There's the legend of wisdom. Where shall it be found? God understands its way. He knows its place. For he looks to the end of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure. When he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it indeed. He searched it out. And to man, he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To depart from evil is understanding. Where is wisdom? Where can it be found? 
the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if he found wisdom, but he also could not find wisdom. And then we see an application of this in verses 25 and 26. Instead, he found an ensnaring woman, uh, ensnaring, ensnaring women, uh, plural. Verse 25, I applied my heart to know and to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things. He wants to determine, again, what is the end? What is the purpose, the reason of things in this world? What is the meaning of life in a lot of ways? And so he did so by trying to know both wisdom and foolishness. He sought to determine which one is the right way. Now, we sort of saw something like this in Ecclesiastes 1, verses 12 through 18, There we see how he pursues wisdom, but he finds grief. The more one knows about wisdom, the more one will know about foolishness, right? And the more one knows about foolishness, they'll recognize that there is sadness and sin in this world. And the more one learns about foolishness and sin in this world, they realize how rare sin truly and actually is in this present evil age. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And there is no one who does good. And in Ecclesiastes 1, it only brought sadness. It didn't bring encouragement. It only brought sadness as he pursued it. To know wisdom and wickedness. To know wisdom and foolishness. To know wisdom, the right end of things, and madness. And here is what he found. Verse 26. And I find more bitter than death. It'd be better to die than to endure what he refers to here. It'd be better to die than to be caught in the snares of who he mentions here. Verse 26, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. Now, certainly, I say, as I said, this is a difficult section, and there are many differing views, once again, in the commentators about what's going on here. One commentator perhaps does highlight the metaphorical aspect going on here. He's describing here the difference between, again, lady wisdom which you can read about in Proverbs 8, and Dame Folly, which you can read about in Proverbs 9, verses 13 through 18. There are two ladies, one is wisdom, and one only leads to foolishness. That could be what is in view here, and I certainly think that is uh, a compelling uh, um, meaning. But I think on top of that, included in that, and certainly he is talking about the pursuit of wisdom in general, but we see the manifestation of foolishness with literal woman. We see the manifestation of his wickedness with actual ladies. And again, I do believe Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. I do believe it's written by Solomon after he was, uh, he, after he repented of his pursuit of those 1,000 ladies. I do believe that. In the book of the Kings, it says he did, he wrote more about wisdom. Are there not more words of his wisdom uh, that we see in those books? I believe Ecclesiastes is that book of wisdom. And it also coheres with what he says in Proverbs 5, when he talks about the perils of adultery. When he talks about the, 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 the lady who would draw someone in, she sounds great, her lips are sweet, but it only leads to bitterness. And what does he say? My son, know this. My son, remember these things. My son, pay attention to what I have to say. Flee from her. Run away from her. Go away from said woman. So I do believe there is a metaphorical aspect, but also it's exemplified in the literal ladies that were snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. 
It only brought sadness. It only brought bondage. It only brought uh, foolishness to one who was supposed to be the wisest one. He sought wisdom, but found folly. Now there is mercy, verse 26. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. That is, there can be an escape, and that escape is only in God most high. Again, we see that. He's referring to where meaning comes from. He's referring to where aid comes from. He's referring to where his help comes from, even as he pursues what is wisdom and folly in this world. So he says, he who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her, distinguishing between those who are uh, the, the different paths one can take when one encounters the snares of a woman. It's a good example of wisdom and foolishness, uh, what we see here as he talks about adultery. Now, the application I want to draw in this section is the fact that we can escape in God. Now, God is wisdom, and God knows all things. And remember, God knows all things, not as you and I know all things. He doesn't, you know, it's not discursive for him. It's not I have to read that and forget it and remember it again and read it again and forget it and read it and forget it again. And then finally, I memorize it. That's not how God learns. God actually doesn't learn, right? God simply is. God simply knows. God simply is who he is. All that is in God is God. There cannot be any parts within God and his attributes don't add up to be him, but God truly is wisdom and it has and is perfect knowledge but and so certainly we do not possess that wisdom that's why our wisdom is the fear of the lord to fear the lord is wisdom to shun evil is understanding to fear the lord is wisdom to shun evil is understanding foolishness is fearing man and misunderstanding is welcoming evil That's what wisdom is. It's all connected and tied to sin. Wisdom helps us think through as we uh, consider God's law, how we operate in our lives and how we think through how to respond with whatever temptation, whatever circumstance may come our way. And we need God's grace, don't we? We need God's wisdom to think through how we ought to live. Now notice, when he speaks about wisdom here, All the times I know I am guilty of this very thought, but sometimes we think wisdom is required for circumstances in life. Who I'm going to marry, certainly you need wisdom for that. What school I'm going to go to, certainly we need wisdom for that. What job I'm going to have, certainly we need wisdom for all of those things. But what's the emphasis here? When there's temptation, when there's a lady who wants to engage in adultery and the one who is snares and nets, How should one operate? With wisdom. In this case, wisdom is discerning, and hopefully it's clear that that we ought to run away from said thing. It's the right decision in temptation. It's an attentiveness to the things of God, being acquainted with God's word, being acquainted with who God is, being acquainted with God's law, but also a sensitivity by the Spirit to make godly decisions when temptations arise. Just know it. I'm being tempted. Flee and run away. Now, again, if we fall, there's mercy in Christ. But notice it is that. That is where wisdom lies. Ultimately, temptation comes. We need God's wisdom and grace to run and flee, to shun evil. And even God says of Job, here is my servant. Notice, 
He fears evil, he fears me, and he shuns understanding. That's what wisdom ultimately is in light of temptation. Now, there is escape in God, an escape in Christ, an escape by the Spirit. Again, though we fall, there is mercy and forgiveness in God, mercy and forgiveness in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you have the power of the Spirit, who strengthens us with might in the inner man, who gives us temptations, as 1 Corinthians 10 says. There's a bit of overlap with what we saw last week and this week when it comes to sin and that application. That is, when we are tempted, we are tempted by things that are common to man. We are tempted by things that everyone is tempted to do. And thankfully, God is merciful to give us the strength to flee from those temptations. Matthew Henry has been excellent on Ecclesiastes. He under stands the nuance, but gives good insight. He says, he reckoned it a great instance of God's favor to any man, if by his grace, he has kept him from this sin. So he does believe it's literal, that it's referring to women who actually ensnare, and certainly they do. He that pleases God shall escape from her, shall be preserved either from being tempted to this sin, or from being overcome by the temptation. Those that are kept from this sin must acknowledge it is God that keeps them. Brethren, when God delivers you from temptation, don't pat yourself on the back, but praise God for that said uh, deliverance, because God is good. And not any strength or resolution of their own must acknowledge it a great mercy. And those that would have grace sufficient for them to arm them against this sin must be careful to please God in everything by keeping his ordinances. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. There is mercy and escape in the Lord God most high. So that's discovering how ensnaring women are. Let's then look secondly at how uh, discovering how rare a godly woman is, verses 27 and 29. Notice verses uh, 27 to 29. Notice verses 27 and 28. Finding no woman. And notice we see, the preacher's reflection, verse 27. Here's what I have found, says the preacher. You know, I want to know why this is an important section because only three times in the book do we go to the, does he uh, refer to himself in the third person? When he opens the book and talks about vanity of vanities, and at the end of the book, when he closes all things up, and here, all here is what I have found, says the preacher. That is, there is great reflection here on his life, a significant point of reflection of what he endured. Now, again, I believe there are two sides. We won't just blame the woman for being the one who ensnares, but the man's at fault too for being drawn in to said snare. They're both involved here. And his heart was turned away. And because of what he did, the kingdom was rend into, and we have the northern and southern kingdoms. But nonetheless, he's reflecting here. Here's what I found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. He looks one thing upon the other. He's learning discursively. He's learning uh, uh, as he observes. He's learning as life unfolds. Perhaps some commentators highlight it refers to the sins that he kept compounding one upon the other. And he kept searching out the reason, the purpose for all these things. He's recounting his steps But he says, which my soul seeks, that is wisdom, I cannot find. He cannot find it. He cannot see it. He cannot 
recognize it. And what he's trying to highlight here for us is really from the lips of the wisest man, how rare wisdom is. And notice how he, the, the illustration that he uses here. Wisdom, again, is rare. The right, balanced, sober approach to life. I mean, he does say in verse 16, don't be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Recognize that good things in this world can become bad gods, but also recognize that God gives good gifts and the ability to use those good gifts. Again, when there's prosperity, rejoice, but also recognize when adversity comes as well. Sober reflection, sober contemplation, sober recognition. God's people, and I am guilty of this as well, are so prone to extremes. We hear one thing and we shun everything about that thing that we are shunning. We shun everything about the last thing rather than recognizing we need to have balance in the world that we do live in. And let's be honest, because of phones and because we're so busy all the time, how often do we just stop and think? Like just stop and reflect, stop and ponder, stop and, and wonder, stop and ask God uh, uh, for wisdom. How often do we just stop and use our brains and think about our lives? And sometimes we make overly simplistic assessments about the world. Sometimes life is more complex than that. I know I make overly simplistic statements about history. We all do that. But history is much more complex than that when you consider how history unfolds. But we so often don't stop and ref uh, don't stop and reflect on life. What is a balanced, sober approach to life? And he says, he highlights how rare it is. One man among a thousand I have found. And again, some commentators, literal, just referring to a lot of people, but perhaps he does have his 1,000 ladies in mind here, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And amongst 1,000, I could only find one man, again, figurative and literal kind of going on here, I do believe. Or he's using a life experience to illustrate something for us. One man among 1,000, I have not found. And then also, but a woman among all these I have not found. It's already rare for men to be wise. It's rare for women to be wise as well, isn't it? Godliness is just simply a rare thing in this present age. Wisdom is a rare thing in this present age. His pursuit has yielded a result, but the result shows how wicked man is. This is so different from the world, right? So different from new age philosophy, new age understanding, everybody's good, everything's wonderful, everything's great. I want to find the goodness in man. Watched a show a couple of years ago called The Kindness Diaries. This guy got in a bike and he went across the world on random acts of kindness. So he based on the premise that everyone's kind. Now, people did do nice things. I'm not denying that. But brother, in reality, why do people do nice things? A lot of the time, it's tainted by our own pride. That's why he says, don't be overly righteous. Because as we highlighted last time, a lot of the times in our own pursuit of righteousness, we sin, do we not? I use that example of the man who wants to take three hours off during the day from his job to spend more time with God. Sorry, people have jobs and people have to work hard. People have to not be sluggards. People have to make sure that they are honoring God with the eighth commandment. 
That's why you don't, you know, sacrifice the eighth commandment for the, of the other ones. They're all together and connected. Are they not? You see how often it is we sin, even as we pursue righteousness again. Thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. But Solomon's pursuit, the preacher's pursuit, only yielded foolishness. A woman among all these I have not found. And Henry points out, doubtless this is not intended as a censure of the female sex in general. I agree. It is probable that there have been and are more good women than good men. See Acts 17. He merely alludes to his own sad experience. And perhaps there may be this further in it. He does, in his Proverbs, warn us against the snares of both evil men and of the strange woman. Now, he had observed the ways of the evil woman to be more deceitful and dangerous than those of the evil men that it was more difficult to discover their frauds and elude their snares. And therefore he compares sin to an adulteress, Proverbs 9, 13, and perceives he can no more find out the deceitfulness of his own heart than he can that of a strange woman whose ways are movable, but thou canst not know them. Perhaps it is more difficult to discern, according to Solomon, according to Henry, according to Ecclesiastes, the deceitfulness of a woman, they, her heart is snares and nets, but a woman among all these I have not found. He's highlighting the peril of foolishness with the idea of adultery. Now, he will talk about the importance of marital fidelity when we get to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. But the sad thing is Solomon learned this by experience. Bridges says far better it would have been for Solomon to have known foolishness and madness by observation, by the records of conscience, by the testimony of the word, and by the terrible personal experiment. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. But one thing his quest yielded was verse 29. He found the reason for all this. He found the fall. Truly this I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Notice, he made, God made man upright. That is how important this verse is when considering the creation and fall of man. It's all summed up right there. God created, man fell. And how often he reflects in this book on creation. How often we ought to reflect on the importance of creation. What God has done for us. God made man it could actually say God made Adam upright, or perhaps just referring to the universal man. God made man in general upright. Certainly God made man upright in Adam, who is the federal head of all his posterity, namely all humans in this world. We know that God made man in his image, Genesis 1, 27, Psalm 8. He made man to be his vice regents, to have dominion over this earth. God made man whose nature was able at that time to be able to sin and able not to sin. He made man upright and saw that it was very good. He made man in his image in true righteousness, knowledge, and holiness, right? But there's a problem, isn't there? Man was unstable. Man could fall and Adam did fall and we in him. And again, I think this section helps us give us theological reflection about why sin comes into this world. 
Now remember, brethren, God decrees that sin comes into this world, right? God decrees all things come to pass. In 7.13, the language is, consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? That's hard, isn't it? God decreeing sin to come to pass, but also recognizing, based on what we see in verse 29, but they have sought out many schemes. God decreed that it would be crooked, but it's man's fault. Brethren, it's our fault, isn't it? God said to Adam, you may eat of any tree of the garden, any one you want, but of this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course, what do they do? They eat from that one tree, bringing sin into this world. But that doesn't make God the author of sin. Secondary causes are important. God is the first cause, but there are secondary causes. Bridges says why he decreed his fall so that without his decree of his will, it could not have been. We dare not ask. (laughs) We dare not ask. But he was not God was not in any degree the cause of it. God made man upright, but he sought out his own devices. Now, we must also recognize, too, that God is never bound to bestow grace to save sinners, right? God never had to do that. But God, in his infinite mercy, decreed to save sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think uh, Ecclesiastes 7.29 helps us think through a very difficult subject for a lot of us, a great mystery. This only I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many devices, many schemes. See how comforting theology is? (laughs) Why is the world the way it is? Well, the doctrine of sin. It explains why there's foolishness. It explains why there's sin. It explains why he's ensnared. Explains why there's ones who will ensnare him. What's interesting is the language of schemes there is a play on words with reasons. <laughs> Man sought out his own reasons. Man sought out his own accounts rather than God's. And we see because of Adam's sin and our fault, there is no one righteous, no, not one, which is what he says in verse 20. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and who does not sin. And we must recognize who started it. Now, I know it's Adam who was the one who was given the task to be the vice regent. But who ate first? Eve. Eve ate first. Adam should have said, honey, what you doing? But he didn't. He ate with her who was standing there. But man is sinful. And we see the reversal of the created order. Creature, woman, than man. Again, not saying women are subhuman, but God uh, made man and woman, male and female. He created them in his image, but God made the woman to help Adam in his task. But he, they brought sin into this world. He made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes, an important universal reality. And again, that should be comforting for us because again, it helps us explain why there's sadness in this world. Why there's sin in this world, why both men and women are sinful in this world. Yes, women can do things wrong too, that my friends in high school didn't understand that. 
or at least they were suppressing that, were they not? Just like as well that, you know, men can, uh, uh, men especially can do things wrong as well. We're all prone to our proclivities, all prone to our sins. There's a reason all these things are in this world. It's because of the fall. Fallen, sinful, inconsistent. It gives us perspective. You are even in our, we are redeemed in Christ, but we have remaining corruption. And so we are still sinful and still inconsistent. Nobody likes to admit that. We're sinful and inconsistent. Are we not? We get things wrong. We don't always get things right, even though we like to stand pat on our ideas. So often we get many things wrong and we are prone to wander and leave the God that we love. That's why the doctrine of sin is so comforting and practical for the people of God as we continue to walk this world, recognizing people are sinful, recognizing we are saved from our, uh, from our sins and for our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ, which ought to make us more compassionate to sinners out there. Certainly, we ought to tell them the truth. I'm not saying that, but ought to make us more compassionate. Because let's be honest, in a world that preaches self-help and self-esteem and has no category for sin, no wonder everybody's depressed. No wonder everybody's miserable. How can they make sense of the world that is around them. They've been told, well, everything should be wonderful and great. And if nothing happens that is wonderful and great, they're like, wait, what's going on? They don't have Genesis 1 through 3. You and I have Genesis 1 through 3. Now we ought to tell them about Genesis 1 through 3. We have Genesis 1 through 3, the creation of the world, recognizing A, in the beginning, God, recognizing creator, creature. That's an important thing to recognize. In the, in the beginning, God, God who is, is the one who creates. The one who, the one who creates does not change in himself as he creates, but he still works in time and space without being changed. Remember, God doesn't need you and I. He doesn't need to be worshipped as though he needed anything. Acts chapter 17, but he is the one who gives to all life, breath, and all things. Remember that. God is, God is creator, and you and I are the creator. Ted. Then we have Genesis 2, where we see, you know, all right, Genesis 1 still, we're made in his image. Genesis 2, he breathed life. We have the covenant of works in Genesis 2, and then we have the fall in Genesis 3. Those who are not in Christ do not have that. Those who are outside of the church do not have that explanation. Now, it's not always sunshine and rainbows, but it explains things, doesn't it? God made man upright, but he sought out his own devices. Now, thankfully, brethren, our sin and our foolishness is the reason we need a Christ. He really is our escape, isn't he? And that's why right after the fall, we have the first gospel proclamation. When he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He shall cruise your, his, your head but you shall bruise his heel. He's referring to Christ. The first gospel proclamation there. And what's so beautiful is he's speaking, certainly speaking to the, uh, the, the, the devil and the serpent. He talks about the woman. I know Adam, and certainly he is the last Adam, but he's talking about the woman. Kind of softens the blow, doesn't it? Woman in you, the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Now, Paul, I do believe, draws on this in 1 Timothy 2, and this is where we'll close. 
as he's talking about the place of men and women in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, again, we don't believe women are subhuman or less than man, but there are certain roles that God has given to men and women, especially in his church and certainly in the family. But after he talks about how women must be silent, he does say, verse 13, referring to creation, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, eventually he sinned, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And then verse 15, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. I think you need to add a the there. She'll be saved in the childbearing. The way the grammar works there, I think there needs to be a, uh, there is a, the, the, um, the way the grammar works typically, not that you need to know all this, but the, but the, I just know that the grammar uh, highlights that the should be there. He's not saying women are saved by virtue of having babies. That's not what he's saying. That would make it a work, right? But saved in the childbearing. I think it's a direct reference to Genesis 3.15 or an allusion to Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. Salvation comes in the seed of the woman. Salvation comes through the childbearing, looking ahead to Mary, who would bear the Lord, who would bear God in the incarnation, bear the one who was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, namely our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So even though women can bring bitterness, even though women still sin and men still sin, the way in which salvation comes about is through the incarnation of one who was born of a woman, born under the law. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, thank you for the fact that you created this world in the space of six days and saw that it was very good. Thank you that you made uh, men in your image. Thank you that you made them in your likeness. And we're thankful, oh God, you made us male and female. And we're thankful in your image, you created us. Thank you, oh God, that even though we have fallen, that there is that last Adam who has come. And thank you, even though Adam fell, that there is mercy in Christ in the second and last Adam. And we're also thankful, oh God, that even though woman, uh, the woman Eve was deceived by the serpent and ate first, that you said through the seed of the woman will come the one who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Thank you for the childbearing in Mary. Thank you for that this one who is Savior is fully God and fully man, like us in every way, yet without sin. And we're thankful, O God, in him there is wisdom. In him there is perfection. In him there is righteousness. In him uh, there is truth. And we're thankful that his righteousness has been imputed to us. He is the one who is perfect in every way, and in him we find mercy. So we're thankful we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Thank you that it has been imputed to us. And we ask, oh God, that we're, uh, thank you that we have that escape in him. And we pray, oh God, as we walk this world still, that you give us wisdom and temptation. Help us to flee. Help us to run. Help us to make those right decisions as temptations unfold and occur in our life. We run from those things, oh God, and never get caught in them. But if we do, may we confess them to you, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we ask, oh God, that you be with us this night, be with us as we go into the world tomorrow. Keep us and protect us, guide us, we pray. And we pray that you be honored and glorified in the name of Christ. Amen.